Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, while my back's been turned, Ronnie O'Sullivan has won two tournaments in a row. Uh, the Masters, of course, and the World Grand Prix since we last gathered together on this podcast. Um, of course, it's three in a row, really. The UK Championship was the, the previous event he played in. Here's the thing about Ronnie O'Sullivan. He's 48 years of age. He's 32 years into his professional career, and he's arguably now at his most dominant. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. The main one is, of course, he's a brilliant player. That, that kind of goes without saying, although we should say it. We certainly saw that in that semi-final Saturday night, which we'll come to. Um, but also, he digs in now more than ever. I mean, the final wasn't a great match against Judd Trump last night in the World Grand Prix, really, in terms of the standard we were expecting from them. And, of course, we expect a lot from these players, because they often do deliver. But my word, he battled. He stuck in there. And a bit like in the Masters final, he played better in the second session. Um, he wanted to win. That, that was the bottom line. He wanted to win. He had that will to win. The other thing, though, is it's got to be said, and this is not his problem, but other players are not performing. I mean, Trump didn't really play well in that final. Um, some of the other big hitters are not kind of putting it up to him. And as I say, it's not his problem. But they're going to have to get their act together because... Otherwise, it will be, I think, his world title. He's the favourite, justifiably, right now. He said Trump was, which was <laughs> which was kind of, well, just not true, is it, really? Ronnie's the favourite, got to be, uh, for an eighth world title. And obviously, a lot can happen before then. And form comes and goes. And just because he's on top now doesn't mean he will be April, May time. But there's a kind of... The fear factor, I think, has never been higher now. He's, he's sort of intimidation factor for other players. The aura is growing with every title he wins. It's quite remarkable. It's quite remarkable and, um, you know, dramatic couple of weeks. Obviously, the Masters final, we'll get onto this, ended in quite a bit of acrimony in a way. There were all retirement talk and I don't want a beer, all that stuff. But he, he was there and he came away with another trophy. 41 ranking titles. Um, he's earned nearly a million already this season. World number one by quite some distance now. I guess, I mean, he's playing the World Open qualifier this week in Barnsley. And it, by the way, it's ridiculous he has to play that. I mean, why his match hasn't been held over, you know. Okay, the, the the convention is it's the defending champion, which is Judd Trump. It's the world champion, which is Luca Brassell, and it's the top two highest ranked Chinese players, Ding Junhui and Zhang Ander. 
Fine. But that's not a rule written down anywhere. That's just a convention. They could have held his match over, and it should be held over. Um, he plays Alfie Burden in Barnsley on Tuesday. Uh, complete sort of after the Lord Mayor's show affair going there. But um, he'll be determined to win because obviously, you know, it, it's in his interest to, to qualify for China. He does a lot of promotional work there. I was told even if he didn't qualify, he'd still be going out there. But we want him playing in the tournament. And I'm sure the promoters want him playing in the tournament. Uh, but anyway, he's got that. And then I guess from what he was saying, possibly the players' challenge will be the next time we see him. It looks like maybe he might sit out the German Masters and the Welsh Open, which will be a shame for those tournaments. But he's kind of earned the right to do that. You know, if you're, if you're winning tournaments left, right and centre, you can pick and choose. Um, so he's uh, confirmed for the new Saudi event. And I will be discussing that later. This episode is called The Golden Ball of Riyadh. And we'll be talking about that later. But anyway, it's been a, it's been a terrific two weeks. It really has been brilliant. Uh, really enjoyable. Um, I actually thought, and this, you know, may be controversial, I actually thought the World Grand Prix was a better tournament. Now, it, it, historically, the Masters obviously is ahead of it, but just the, the snooker that was played, I thought was better. Uh, we build the Masters up so much, and, you know, it, there was a lot of good snooker played, a lot of excitement, and obviously in that environment as well, but I actually enjoyed the World Grand Prix more. That's just me. Other people may disagree. It doesn't matter. They were both great events. Well, I think what was interesting was, you know, there was sort of talk that, oh, well, the World Grand Prix will be overshadowed by the Masters. It's interesting. Once you start the next event, it becomes the event you're thinking about. And the Masters sort of receded into the background quite quickly, actually. And there was a lot of stuff going on. I mean, I did the Mark Williams Hussain Vafai match. There was all sorts going on there. Um, very enjoyable week. Really uh, good stuff as, as ever from ITV Sport as well. And uh, we move on to the correspondence. And we've had a lot come in, so I'm going to try and get through as much as possible. I'm just going to sort of start at the Masters and work my way forward. So firstly, Kelly Barker, um, who has gone along, Kelly, obviously a big snooker fan, has gone along to the Masters. She's, and Now, this came in, uh, as I think, as the final began. So uh, she didn't know who'd won, but uh, she said, what a tremendous Masters event it's been. I was lucky enough to be at Ali Pali for three days early in the tournament. I saw Ding make his one for seven which was at least my 20th one seen live. I especially enjoyed Carter v. Williams and Trump v. Wilson too. You raise an interesting point there, Kelly. I mean, who has seen the most live maximum breaks? I was talking to Neil Folds about who who maybe had commentated on most of them, and we couldn't kind of work it out. But who's actually, as a spectator, seen the most? If you've seen 20, you know, you're high up that list, I think. Uh, Kelly continues, The venue has never been my favourite. There's nowhere really compares to the Crucible, but the arena is tremendous for this event, and I thought some of Ronnie's comments were a bit ridiculous. Well, we'll come on to those later, uh, Kelly. She says, as I write this, the final's just underway. I don't really mind who wins. It'd be great to see Ali win one of the real majors of the sport. Well, spoiler alert, he didn't. <laughs> That's, I'm adding that in, by the way. Uh, she says, a word from Mark Allen's 1472, which was absolutely superb and a real highlight of the tournament. I booked the same three days for next year, despite the seating being the downside of the tournament. The atmosphere in the arena absolutely makes up for it. Well, yeah, I mean, some people do say the seating's not great, but the fact is every seat was sold, wasn't it? And and the tickets have, have absolutely flown flown off the shelves for next year, which is brilliant. I do think, and, and, and I think it was borne out again this year, it just looks good. It looks like a sort of a th- event you want to go to. Um, you know, they do a great job with it. World Snooker Tour and, and Rob Walker as well out there warming everybody up. Brilliant. So, uh, yeah, it was successful. When I said I thought the World Grand Prix was better, I just meant the snooker. I didn't mean the environment necessarily. Um, we move on now Richie Turner I like Richie because he's come straight in here with just a question and nothing else he says what's the deal with O'Sullivan and his scruffy trainers at the Masters <laughs> well he's got a bad foot <coughs> um, 
there is a, a medical term for it, which, which, which eludes me right now, but uh, he, he has a medical note. It's a real thing. He can't run at the moment. Um, it doesn't look great. I, I, I agree. Maybe, arguably, you could find a sort of more aesthetically pleasing pair of trainers, but, I mean, that is, you know, within the rules, if, if you have an injury like that, you can um, play in the trainers. I assume at some point he'll be back on, back with the, uh, the proper shoes, but um, anyway, we'll monitor that. Uh, James Howard... I hope the new year is treating you well. Well, you too, James. Whilst this year's Masters has been one of the best in recent memory, I'm afraid I'm going to have another moan regarding the crowds. I'm noticing it more and more how rowdy the crowds are becoming, and not in a good way. It's becoming more like the darts or the football. Whilst we're all enjoying engaged crowd, the constant calling out, even when a player is down on their shot, is becoming quite tiresome. I'm currently midway through the evening session of the final, and the screaming fans of O'Sullivan are frankly driving me insane. <laughs> there are people calling out, come on Ronnie, whilst Carter's at the table. It's not the first time I've heard this. I really feel more needs to be done by referees to deter this behaviour, because it isn't a good look for snooker. Anyway, rant over. I'm going to get back to what is turning into a tremendous final, aided by yours and Neil's wonderful commentary as ever. Kind of you, James. Thank you for the email. Yeah, I mean, the Masters has always been associated with this. I would say it, that arguably it did tip over at times in the final. I suppose the last session is going to happen. Um, John Parrott made the point that because uh, there had been such a long gap between the first and second session, you know, the local watering holes had been well utilised, let's put it that way. Uh, excuse me. <coughs> but um, I do have to say, and yeah, I can understand why it would annoy people. And, and I mean, the one way to sort of clamp down is actually just make an example of someone, throw someone out. And prove that actually, if you do cross the line, you'll be thrown out. Um, some sort of sacrificial lamb, you know, marched out. Even if it's a plant, you could you could actually get a plant in there and and have them sort of marched out and 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 sort of send a message that you know you could be next. I will say this though, it's nowhere near as bad as it used to be. Uh, Wembley, it was far. I would say ten times worse. Uh, the Wembley Conference Centre, they were they were baying mob there. Stephen Hendry used to get absolute pelters from people, um, and of course he used to keep winning the tournament. Um, even Steve Davis, who was a Londoner, and one of my theories is why he didn't win that, the Masters as much as the other events is he was on home soil and, and people used to boo him. You know, he played Alex Higgins, he got booed. Ridiculous. Disgraceful. Um, and Wembley Arena was actually quite nasty at times. I mean, the O'Sullivan Ding final 2007. That was just a nasty environment. It wasn't good natured at all. So I would say, okay, I understand why some people don't like the calling out. It's nowhere near as bad as it used to be. It doesn't mean it excuses it. But it's been a lot worse in this event, I think. And uh, as I say, maybe the, the, the way to kind of cool it down a little bit is to, you know, just sort of make an example of someone and say, look, you actually will, the people will be thrown out if they cross the line. Um, I'm not sure the line has been massively crossed myself, but people have different sort of views on all of that. Alpha Bonzi always likes to get in contact after tournaments. We're still talking about the Masters here. He says, after a tense but fun week at Ali Pali, where the rocket makes yet more history. My three quick questions are, number one, is Ronnie at 48 still snooker's Luke Littler? <laughs> well, Luke Littler, of course, uh, is the 16-year-old. I think he's just turned 17, um, who made the World Darts Final, the PDC World Darts Final, at Alexander Palace, in fact, uh, in the new year. And he's just won the Bahrain Masters as well. Beat Van Gerwen in the final there. Made a nine-darter in the first leg of the, of the quarterfinal. I mean, just a, a sensation, a genuine, real-deal sensation. That was, I guess, Ronnie O'Sullivan back in... 1993, when he won the UK Championship. And in a way, yeah, you're right, I can understand what you're saying. He kind of is still... Well, he's still the man, isn't he? He's more the man than ever, actually. Um, I think that he's become... Um, 
a bigger figure, um, and then his sort of legacy and his and his uh, aura is growing all the time. And, and I think we see that, you know, just the way that other players now look at him. So yeah, I, I suppose he, he still is. Uh, number, question two: If not, then who is? <laughs> well, I've answered that. You say who could be? I mean, obviously, we'd love a Luke Littler character. We'd love a young player to come along, shake things up, turn over some of the old guards, and maybe sort of not really even show them respect in a way. Just come along feeling that they're the best. We haven't quite got there. Um, and I'm not quite sure how we do get there because certainly in the UK, and the grassroots in the UK is doing better than is kind of widely said, I think. But we don't have the volume coming through. Obviously, we've got some talented new players. Stan Moody, Liam Pullen. We've got Liam Graham from Scotland. Liam Davis. They're all called Liam, I noticed. Liam Davis from Wales. Hopefully, will be on the tour next year, next season. But, you know, the sort of volume um, is not quite there. Will time will tell whether any of those guys will break through, um, and then obviously he's played China and other places around the world. But I mean, it will happen. There'll be someone come along, but whether it'll be some sensation coming along as a teenager, well, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. And number three, how do John Higgins and Mark Selby have such poor records in London? Fifteen first round losses for Higgins, despite two titles, and Selby not past the quarter since 2014, despite three wins. And one quick comment, maybe Will Snooker should send the wasps and flies after the crowd members who called out after every shot tonight. <laughs> well, Alpha, that, that's, that's one solution to the crowd business. <clears throat> yeah, they have a lot of wasps and flies, uh, Ali Pye. It's a huge building, um, and, and that's an issue. But uh, in terms of Selby and Higgins, of course, well, Higgins is a twice champion, Selby's a three times champion, so it ain't that bad, I suppose, on that basis. But you're right, they, they, in recent years have underperformed. John Higgins is a, it's a feast or famine event for him. Um, he just doesn't quite seem always that comfortable in the event for some reason I don't know why Selby I mean it's a, I've got to remember the Masters is a very tough tournament they're all top players um, he um, his performance uh, against Mark Allen was uh, it sort of deteriorated didn't it he started well and it deteriorated and that must be a concern and, and it, it wasn't that much better it's got to be said at the World Grand Prix although I think I know there was sort of a couple of off table um, issues. There was a bereavement uh, close by, and, and, and that obviously that uh, that had its uh, had its uh, sort of um, influence as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't rule out either of them coming good in that event again. Although, of course, John Higgins not guaranteed to be in it next year with his with his ranking position. Uh, we move on. Simon Gray, a long time listener, first time emailer. Firstly, I love the podcast. So keep up the good work. I'm also a fan of your commentary on Eurosport. Well, that's kind of you, Simon. He says. Uh, just a few observations and questions following the Masters. Uh, he says, I think you may have mentioned on social media or commentary that O'Sullivan seemed to have improved his break, regularly getting one red to come off the side cushion or go back into the pack, Doug Mountjoy style. This was so... There's that Doug Mountjoy, the reference there is he broke off and popped black and the reds basically went back into the triangle, like, as, as, as in the starting position. It's on YouTube. He says, this was so noticeable and therefore it must have been intentional. Something you've been practising. I'm amazed that more players seem to play frame after frame, constantly leaving a makeable red, and never seem to care or improve it. Murphy's breaks in the semi-final in particular are awful. Do you have any inside knowledge on whether Ronnie's been working on it, whether players generally do try and improve it? <coughs> I don't know whether Ronnie's been working on it. Um, Kyron Wilson came up with a kind of different different one, which didn't seem to work that much. <laughs> um, I think players do think about the break-off. Um, but there's a lot of other things to think about, I suppose. Um, I mean, obviously, Mark Williams had his had his spell, played that very negative one. Um, 
But uh, it's an important shot. It's maybe more important than ever, I suppose, is the point. Simon continues, it was also as noticeable and great to see that the pockets were generally quite tight. This made such a refreshing change from some recent tournaments. It's a bugbear of mine that any viewer with any sort of snooker knowledge can see there's a difference in pocket size between tournaments, but commentators generally don't tend to acknowledge or admit this. I'm going to disagree with that because myself and certainly the people I work with, they do comment on it. And, and I think you're right about the, the pockets of the Masters. I thought they were tight in uh, Leicester. That brown that Trump missed, I mean, it looked in. Um, I think it should have been in, actually. Anyway, uh, he says, I don't think anyone minds the variation. It's quite appropriate that if they're going to be tighter to do so in triple crown events... I don't agree with that either. They should be the, they should be the same size in every event. I mean, they do play differently, Simon. Um, you're right. In China, the international championship, they were huge. Um, uh, and we're only talking fractions, actually, that can make a difference. I mean, the table fitters do a fantastic job. They're brilliant. But it's just the slight variations, and it can be the cloth sometimes, it can be the environment, the atmosphere, can make a difference. Uh, Simon says, don't treat us like idiots and say they're always the same, and we can see with our own eyes they're not. Well, like I say, <laughs> quite often we, we do actually point out our views on the pockets. Uh, I think I can only remember Hendry on BBC making a real point of saying they were generous at one of the recent tournaments when they were sliding in after hitting the cushion an inch before the pocket. That was refreshing to hear. I'm probably doing you and Neil Foles a disservice in saying you've never acknowledged this, so please take that comment as a generalisation. But my question is similar to the previous one. Do you have any insider knowledge about table setup, whether it's intentional, some are set up easier than others? No, they're not set up easier than others. There's no conspiracy. This is nonsense. People have said, oh, they're, you know, players have said, oh, they're making the pockets, but they're not. Um, it's left to the table fitters, as I say, there are. Even the venues sometimes, you know, there's issues about the floor and, and, you know, they're trying to get the conditions as good as they can. Invariably they do. Sometimes they play easier than other times. That's a fact. And I do think, actually, the TV coverage that I work on, it is pointed out. I think they've been right the last two weeks. They shouldn't be generous. Equally, they shouldn't be brutal. I thought they got the balance right. We had two maximums at the Masters, but as you point out, the pockets weren't generous. Uh, it's just the skill of the players. We have to credit them as well. I thought a couple of balls stayed out um, in Leicester that should have gone in, but overall, I think you'd rather err on that side than, than making them too big. Uh, Simon continues, Finally, I, intended the U I attended the UK in York, been lucky enough to see Ronnie's semi-final against the same Vafai, and was really pleased to be told when purchasing an, an in-ear commentary device that these will also work in Sheffield at the Worlds, as I'm attending six sessions there. This was refreshing and a good move by World Snooker Tour, and something I think you've touched on in previous podcasts. Do you know if this is a one-off for the Triple Crown series or something that's likely to be repeated for other tournaments? Well, thanks, Simon. Uh, we've heard various things on this. Some people have said that they've bought them and they don't work at other tournaments, but if you've been told that, then that's good. And, and uh, I, think, I think it's not unreasonable that if you buy one, during the season, you know, it should kind of work at all the events. I don't, I don't, I don't see why you should shell out 12 quid at every tournament. So let us know when you go to the cruise, but let us know if it does work or not. Uh, now on this, uh, Kevin Hodgson has come up with his own, uh, um, solution, which I think World Snooker might not be happy with. But anyway, I'm just here to read the emails out. I'm not here to judge. So Kevin says, I wrote in recently with a rather ranty email about the cost, environmental as well as the cost to your wallet the WST fan radios and the fact they seem to deliberately change the FM frequency used to broadcast commentary at events every season or two. Well, I'm in Leicester for the Grand Prix this week for a couple of sessions, so I've taken the liberty of buying a very high-quality Chinese-made FM radio for a tenner, cheaper than the WST one, that will pick up as low as 
60 megahertz broadcasts. I'll feed back the results. I sent a message to WST about how bad it is for the planet to keep forcing people to buy new radios, but I never received a response. Okay, so that was uh, part one. Now, Kevin duly attended the uh, event, and this was his follow-up, okay? He says, uh, my cheap radio replacement worked. In fact, I could hear your good self from the arena covering the Mark williams Tech Chaya match in the first round. I will say, though, it was picking up a lot of interference with cameras and people moving around in the arena. This is something I've noticed even with the official WST radios, to be honest. And it's probably to do with the strength of the signal being broadcast, plus how cheaply these radios are made with not enough shielding. Anyway, disappointed to get nothing back from WST. I realise they're a business, but that could be balanced against the environmental cost of producing more or less disposable radios. Anyway, well, it's... It, you know, we're not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not endorsing what Kevin did there, but he used some initiative and he managed to listen to the commentary uh, on his own radio. Now, of course, there's sensation last time. We, we'll continue with the, the hot-button topic soon, but the sensation uh, in the last podcast was about the, uh, the 1983 match at the Crucible between David Taylor and Bill Werbeneck. And uh, footage emerged on YouTube, firstly of David Taylor not sitting next to Bill Werbeneck. He was sat out of shot somewhere. And secondly, the small table that appeared um, for no reason, apparently, uh, between the sort of bulk end and the crowd. It just sat there. Nobody referenced it. The small table was there. And this is uh, one of the great mysteries. Several people have written in to say that the reason David Taylor wasn't sat next to Werbenet was because he hated smoking. And he didn't want to sit next to Bill, who, who smoked. And, and indeed, Trevor Sweetman said, uh, he actually says this, he said, David Taylor wasn't sitting next to Bill due to the cigarette smoke. He moved his chair during the session and sat down the far end. It's possible that the small table at the bulk end was where Taylor originally moved to, but then changed again and went down to the black end instead. As the public could also smoke in the arena back then, it's also possible that Taylor was affected by the crowd smoking as well. I read it somewhere back in the day, thought it may have been Q World, but I've checked the edition that covered the Worlds back in June 83, there was no mention of it there. When Dennis Taylor played Tony Knowles in the World Championship semi-final of 85, Knowles also sat in a very strange place at one point in the match as he placed his chair in line with the brown at the bulk end. This isn't on YouTube, as I have footage on my own. See, in those days, it was very laissez-faire, wasn't it? They did what they liked. Um, placed his chair in line with the brown at the bulk end. How did he get away with that? <laughs> in fact, we were watching uh, Alan McManus found on, on YouTube extraordinary footage from 1980 of uh, Terry Griffiths, Alex Higgins, um, and Terry's making a, what was actually a fantastic break and Alex, he starts in his seat then he gets up and he walks to where the divide is or the partition, just sort of stands there leaning Terry doesn't acknowledge him at all carries on making the break at one point Alex sort of moves even closer to him the referee does nothing by the way just almost like they're not acknowledging what Alex is doing then he goes and sits down again imagine that now the actual absolute fuss that would be made of that <laughs> but in those days they kind of did what they liked the small table, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a suggestion there of uh, the reason for it, but uh, it was still yet to have absolute proof. Um, now, uh, Tre Trevor actually followed up. Um, he, sa he says here, just to add previously what I said about David Taylor not sitting next to Bill, I've now been told, so you see there's more information coming all the time here, I've now been told that people couldn't smoke in the arena back then. Obviously the players did. I went in the 80s, as you know, but I couldn't remember. I know people were allowed to smoke at the Wembley Conference Centre, but not Sheffield, apparently. So Taylor moved to the black end of the table. As for Knowles, it was the lighting that was shining in his eyes. That's why he was sitting at the bulk end near the brown spot. This is all extraordinary stuff, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, anyway, thanks for that. And any more, any more on the table? Um, frankly, all we want to talk about. But uh, do let us know if there's any more theories or, or information about uh, about all of that.
Anthony Gibson, thanks for the podcast and your updates from the Masters. Great idea. Are you planning to do these for future tournaments? Well, Anthony, I mean, you're referring there. Yes, I did some short podcasts. Possibly. I think, you know, with podcasting, you can kind of do it when you want. I mean, the idea is to do it once a week. It doesn't have to be. Um, It maybe got a little much during the Masters, but uh, I think popping up now and again, I mean, maybe if there's an issue during a tournament that needs addressing immediately... Yeah, why not? I mean, I could have done one on the Saudi thing, I suppose, last week, but I was kind of busy with my other work. But, uh, yeah, I think... Watch this space, I would say, whatever that means. He says, My question's about the referees and when the ref- and when they referee. I noticed Desha Shalama Boshalova was the referee on Friday evening and again on Saturday afternoon. As the match finished late on Friday, would it not have been sensible for another referee to take charge of the semi-final on Saturday afternoon? Do the referees know in advance which matches they'll be in charge of, or is it decided after each round? Thanks again for the podcast. Well, thank you, Anthony. Uh, yeah, I think, Anthony, the, 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 it's kind of not last minute, but it's not sort of planned out like a military campaign. I was speaking to one of the referees uh, a couple of days before the Masters. And I asked them which match they were doing, and they didn't know. So it's kind of not decided until the last moment. Although I think the, the referee for the final is decided in advance because that has to get board approval. Um, they're, they're pretty hardy lot, the refs. I don't think Desi would have minded that, that arrangement. You know, they just get on with it. They're used to, particularly in qualifying, they're used to long, long hours and long sessions and they, yeah, they get on with it. And, you know, they all did a fantastic job. It's a difficult event in a way to referee because obviously, um, you know, it's the crowd and the, and the prestige and the importance of it. Stephen Mercer, thanks for all the superb snooker podcasts, especially for the mini extra episodes during the Masters. I went to Ali Pali on, thank you Stephen, he said I went to Ali Pali on Monday evening to see Ali Carter beat Mark Williams. And although he did play well, I didn't think at that stage Ali would progress to the final, given the calibre of the competition. However, as I sit here on Sunday morning, so this is the day of the final, Stephen sent this, I'm relishing the prospect of a proper snooker grudge match and a possible repeat of Bargegate. It's clear from both Ronnie's and Ali's various interviews there's no loss between them, no love lost between them. I look forward to seeing how the atmosphere and body language looks. Just cutting in there, Stephen, it's fair to say after the match it was pretty clear there was no love lost between them. Anyway, he says, against any other opponent, I'd be rooting for O'Sullivan with all the talk of him being the oldest and youngest winner, the three triple crowns in one season and so on. But living in Chelmsford, as I do, I've occasionally seen Ali around town and at his old club. He's never failed to smile or wave an acknowledgement of my recognition. He seems to be really humble and unaffected, in complete contrast to the remote and aloof O'Sullivan. It should be a real humdinger of a final and would be the biggest win of Ali's career. Whatever the outcome, all in all, it must be a tremendous torment. In particular, the two maximums, both overseen, of course, by Desislava Boshlova, which must be a first for any referee. Second, I was catching up with your older podcast over the Christmas break, and during the episode 147, you mentioned you would be interested if any listeners had a copy of Steve Davis's Larder Classic 147 video. I'm pleased to report that I'm a proud owner of the said item. I'd be more than happy to send it to you for your viewing pleasure. That is if you have access to a VHS player. I think we got rid of ours circa 2005. I've attached a photo anyway in case you recognise it. Well, thank you. Yes, Stephen. The, the, Stephen has attached a photo. I do recognise it. I, I actually don't have any way of playing it. So thank you for the offer. But uh, it seems like another lifetime. I remember when the first, when we, when I was a kid, the first VHS player we got, mid-80s, and uh, myself and my sister, we'd take Dynasty so we could watch it again. We didn't want to watch it, but just it was on the telly. We thought this is absolute world of magic you can record something and watch it again so we taped dynasty and then we watched dynasty <laughs> this is what we did before netflix and you know and the internet we, we just taped things off the telly that we didn't want to watch and then we watched them uh the, the world's moved on but uh, th- I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, somebody 
uh, in this case you, um, have got has got that uh, very important uh, very important video. Uh, now what we got here, John. Uh, first of all, thanks for the bonus episodes you did through the Masters. It was a real treat to listen to them throughout the week and the perfect preview ahead of the latest stages of the tournament. Secondly, I feel I'm in a safe environment to say well done to Ali Carter for his superb performance during the week. From my point of view, such a shame he crumbled when it mattered most on Sunday evening. I was fortunate to attend the final of the Masters and seemed to be in the minority of people in the crowd who wanted to see Ali win. I would describe myself as a snooker purist who's a fan of the game and all the drama that unfolds. And I wanted to see Ali win a triple crown event, but alas, it was not to be. Finally, I wanted to add my well-positioned view to Ali's accusation that Ronnie snotted all over the floor. Now, just breaking in there, John, we've now having to broach this rather unpleasant business of the, the suggestion was made that uh, Ronnie cleared his nose on the uh, on the uh, on the Ali Pali carpet, and uh, when when Ali Carter uh, put this uh, forward in the press conference, O'Sullivan reacted very angrily when it was put to him, swearing and having a go at Ali. And it was all, I won't lie, because in the days when I was a journalist, I couldn't have written all that down quickly enough. So I'm not going to be hypocritical. It would have been a great story. But it was quite sort of uh, unpleasant as well at the same time. Not exactly the sort of um, aftermath to a tournament as big as the Masters that you would look for. It got snooker massively in the papers, having said that. And actually there was a great piece by Sean Ingle in The Guardian, the chief sports writer, um, who made the point that other sports could actually learn from Ronnie O'Sullivan. He bulldozed snooker massively into the headlines with all of that, um, you know, with that sort of unfiltered way he behaves. Um, anyway, John was there, so this is what he says. I was sat a few rows from the front near Ronnie's chair, and Ali is telling the truth. I saw with my own eyes that Ronnie snotted on the floor and he, as he walked back to the chair. Doesn't appear to have been picked up by the cameras, and there wasn't any crowd reaction as the attention was on the table, and it happened so quickly, though it seems Ali was not amused, and has added to his outrage of Ronnie's behaviour. I'm not going to comment any further about their post-match spat, though Ali is telling the truth, and the snotting incident did happen. Anyway, life goes on as I watch the World Grand Prix and enjoy another week of snooker ahead. Um, Ali made a, a comment which was kind of unintentionally quite funny. He said... Um, he said he snotted on the floor, but no doubt it'll be it'll be uh, swept under the carpet. I suppose it'd be better under the carpet than on it than on it. But anyway, um, yes, I mean it's, <laughs> this is not sort of I don't think Joe Davis at you know at Leicester Square, Leicester um, Square, uh, Burroughs and Watson, all that. This is not really you know what, what went on there. But uh, yes, you, you've you've given your um, eyewitness account there and. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't picked up on camera. That's the thing. Well, I didn't see it. Maybe other people did. But um, it seems from what you say that it happened. <laughs> um, Leon Tricker. Uh, sorry, Leon, I'm just getting your email up here. He says, uh, once again, a brilliant... This is the Masters. Once again, a brilliant week of snooker was tarnished by the game's chief vexatious complainant, who these days is less the rocket and more the grouchette. I know these things are relative to what you're used to, and perhaps the player facilities at Ali Pali aren't up to stuff, but, the call, but to call the venue disgusting seems like an exaggeration, even by O'Sullivan's melodramatic standards. Perhaps you'll benefit from spending time in a care home or a prison or on a bin lorry to help him gain a sense of perspective with regards to challenging work environments. Furthermore, given Ali Pali has now been added to the long list of venues that O'Sullivan doesn't like, is there a venue in the world that he does think is worthy? Perhaps I'm being oversensitive because I value my annual trip to the Masters so much, which for me involves significant cost and effort. 
I know that a player's perspective is going to be different to that of an audience member, but O'Sullivan's behaviour this week, his comments about the venue, his can't-be-bothered style of post-match interviews, pointedly wearing a coat at all times, etc., seem like a concerted effort to take the shine off the tournament and ruin the experience for everyone else. My opinion of O'Sullivan wasn't improved by a video published on the Eurosport Snooker YouTube channel in which O'Sullivan takes the mickey out of a young security guard who had the temerity not to recognise the great Ronnie. One wonders what O'Sullivan actually thinks of us ordinary punters and those people who shout his name during matches. Does he value us snooker fans or view us as mere peasants? All of this brings me to the Edge of Everything documentary, which I watched over the festive break. Firstly, I must say I thought it was excellently made and it serves as a great film about the sport as much as a documentary about O'Sullivan for giving this insight on the sport to the wider world for being so accessible during filming. O'Sullivan deserves a huge amount of credit. And at risk of straying into amateur psychology territory, I think the documentary definitely lays out the root causes of O'Sullivan's behaviour, with the final part of the film being particularly affecting. One can't help but feel for O'Sullivan, as he's compelled to continue doing something which torments him. However, while the documentary helps to explain his behaviour, that behaviour cannot be excused. In one scene, O'Sullivan suggests that people who say they struggle with mental health issues are jumping on a bandwagon. He clearly implies that while he has genuine mental health issues, other people are exaggerating or faking their struggles. One might hope O'Sullivan would be glad that these days we live in a more enlightened, accepting and supportive world. Instead, he chooses to stigmatise fellow mental health sufferers. The documentary successfully conveys some of the drudgery of life on tour in a similar manner to the excellent Radiohead documentary, Meeting People is Easy. But if life is tough for O'Sullivan... One can only imagine how hard it must be for many other players, especially those at the lower end of the rankings. There's been some discussion on recent episodes of the podcast about the advantage O'Sullivan enjoys by being scheduled to play afternoon matches. Not his fault, of course, but nonetheless a handy advantage. But this is just one advantage that he enjoys with his profile, which ultimately stems from the gift of natural talent. A bit of humility and gratitude that things come easily to him wouldn't go amiss. At this stage in his career, I'm not sure what O'Sullivan's motivation or desired outcome is. Presumably it's for World Snooker Tour to keep him in a manner he believes is befitting of his status, given he never misses an opportunity to tell us how well he is treated in Asia, for example. Frankly, I hope O'Sullivan stops being indulged. If he wants to flounce off to the exhibition circuit, then so be it. I firmly believe the game is bigger than any single individual, and indeed it is in rude health at the moment. If anything for me, his performative lack of interest in winning puts me off watching when he plays. If he doesn't care about competing and what winning a ranking event means in the wider context of the sport's history, then why should I care? Why should fans bother to buy tickets? Why should sponsors view snooker as prestigious? Why would a neutral observer become interested in a sport when its biggest star is effectively saying the whole thing is tinpot? With his constant criticism and his downplaying of the importance of our sport's biggest moments, one wonders if at this point in time O'Sullivan is beginning to do the game more harm than good. Well, it's a thundering polemic from Leon and fantastically written, you've got to say, and argued. I think what, what I would say, Leon, and I understand a lot of the points you make, for me, it's actually, there's a slight sadness that O'Sullivan, a lot of the time, just doesn't seem to derive any joy from it. You know, he, he definitely provides joy and inspires joy in others. We've seen that over the last two weeks. A lot of the time, he doesn't seem to like what he's doing, and that's kind of sad because most people listening to this would absolutely love to have that talent that opportunity it's not just talent it's a lot of hard work as well he's put the work in um, and I don't know if later in life he would look back on it and maybe wish he'd enjoyed it more but maybe he's the player he is because he's the person he is that's the other explanation but I think some of the points you make are well made um, I think there's a kind of myth of genius that's perme permeated through you know various aspects of life Marlon Brando 
um, was was hailed as a genius actor. And what it meant in the end is he didn't bother learning the lines. They used to write them on the, on parts of the set, and other actors had to hold them up because he's a genius, so he doesn't have to learn the lines. No, Marlon, learn the lines like everybody else. You know, you, this idea that I'm a genius, I can behave how I like. No, just be a decent person, and you know, that's kind of how most people should live, really. Uh, in Ronnie's case, he didn't like Ali Pali. But I also do think, and I think this is true, I think that he is a different person away from tournaments. I think he does feel pressure of being in the goldfish bowl of tournaments, and I think that affects his behaviour. I think so much of what he does and says is because he's feeling the pressure of expectation. He's fe- feeling the pressure of people wanting a piece of him. When he walks in a snooker venue, he's the most famous person in there. And okay, you could say, well, that's, you know, because, you know, that's, that, that's the trade off you get for all the money you earn and all the acclaim. But it's a bit uncomfortable. I was out the other day um, with the ITV team and people were coming over to Stephen Hendry looking for selfies and looking for this and that. You know, he's eating lunch and he obliged them. But actually, you know, you're entitled to a bit of private time where you're not just on display and public property. So as ever with these things, there's a bit of nuance. I get what you're saying, but I do think, you know, you and I have not lived that life and had that scrutiny on us. It was noticeable, you know, Go back to the COVID World Championship in 2020 behind closed doors. How more relaxed he was there. Of course, he hadn't won it for seven years. He did win it because there were less people wanting a piece of him. So I think all these things have to be taken into account. But I also think that's a well-argued email as well. Um, Rory Egerton. A lot, of, a lot of emails and that's good. Rory says, long-time listener, first-time writer. Your podcast is by far my favourite snooker podcast. I look forward to it each week. It really brings a sense of community to the game for me. I look forward to hearing yours and other listeners' thoughts all year round. Thank you, Rory. Thanks for writing in. I just said I'd write in to reflect on Ronnie's recent victory in the Masters. As I was watching the Masters conclude over the last three or four days, I started to feel a familiar feeling, which was, regardless of who gets to the final, they're unlikely to beat Ronnie. I really enjoyed the late-night conclusion of the Allen v Selby game, Murphy's excellent attacking snooker against Lazowski, and Carter's great play all week. But with all the excitement... And drama, the result was still the same. Ronnie having the edge over these players, which stopped them from taking advantage on the table when given the chance. Watching Ronnie's interviews over the last few tournaments and listening to what he was saying, I feel like he was just playing against himself in his own love-hate relationship with the game. He fears no one. He almost sees no opponent. If he turns up and he's playing 70%, he'll likely win. Whereas most of the players need to be at 95 to 100% to beat him. I feel his opponents lose to him before the match starts. If Ronnie plays well, they're intimidating. And if Ronnie is playing bad, they're also intimidated that he's giving them chances. As Ronnie said himself, he feels he drags the others down when he plays badly. I'm 41 now and have been watching snooker for almost 30 years. I don't remember feeling like this about snooker, maybe with the exception of Hendry in the 90s. I agree with your recent analysis that snooker's in a good place, but there is an imbalance that that can take from tournaments a little for me. I know it's no one's fault. I would just love for the other players to find a way to compete with Ronnie and be less afraid of him. I think he would like that too. I will say, though, I do think that the daytime playing slot is an unfair advantage for him. Plus, if I had my way, I would allow him to leave the arena after matches if he chooses without an interview. I don't think he analyses the game the way the others do or interviewers want him to. When he's asked questions about position and pivotal moments in the match, he never discusses them. He just concentrates on his own performance, cue action, bridge and etc. Then we hear the other players discussing practising over the holidays and getting help from coaches, etc. Ronnie, with less practice, still walks home with the trophies. Anyway, I don't want this, this to appear as negative towards Ronnie or the other players. They all play a role in the drama of the snooker calendar, which I feel lucky to enjoy year in, year out. I just feel sometimes the balance is a little off and can take from tournaments for me, but I know lots of other solo sports 
have had similar situations over the years. Regardless of what I said in this email, I do hope he wins an eighth world title this year, though it seems it seemed correct for the history books. Just on that, all of that, uh, Rory, thank you for the, the comments. It's interesting, and we saw this actually, I turned up in Leicester on Monday for the World Grand Prix, and Ronnie had just won an eighth Masters title. I didn't hear a single positive word about him personally. The, the achievement, yes, but you know the, 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 the aftermath of what happened afterwards in the press conference, no one had a good word to say about him. But all that went away when he started playing. And, of course, we'll come to the Ding Jun Wee semi-final. When you see him play, kind of all is forgiven. And it's interesting that it seems a long time ago, all, all the row about the, you know, the, I'm going to say it for the last time, snotting on the carpet. Um, that's kind of all in the background. He, can always seem to, he always, throughout his career, whatever he said, has made amends on the table. Because on the table really is where it matters, isn't it? You know, ultimately, the rest of it is just kind of flim-flam. Anyway... Uh, Rory continues on a different note one other point I'd like to make I think we as a collective players, fans, commentators interviews etc should leave Sean Murphy alone I for one don't care if Sean does commentary late at night and plays the next day I think it's his life time, finances and choices he's a grown man so he can make his own decisions we don't know how other players spend their time in between games but I'm sure they're not all at home or in bed at a reasonable hour all the time before big matches my mother always says if you're explaining you're losing so to Sean I say don't go explaining yourself anymore. Most of us don't care that you commentate, and I, for one, enjoy the analysis and wish you well. Sorry about the length of the email. I'll try and write a shorter one next time. Oh, don't worry about that. It's all it's all good stuff. Yeah, I mean, listen, I said last time, Sean is, is, will know best about how to manage his time. The issue for me is more about whether players playing in the tournament, you know, should be commentating. That's that's an argument that you know people have different views on. But yeah, I mean, it's up to him ultimately. Uh, how he spends his time. Uh, now, we're barreling through a lot of emails here, and Peter Neville has written in about the Tour Championship. Uh, he says, I hope you're well. I'm writing in for a second time. I have a crazy idea that the Tour Championship should be held after the World Championship. Madness, maybe, but here are my reasons. Well, there's nothing wrong with a bit of madness, is there? He says, recently I felt there should be more events between the Players' Championship and the Tour Championship, and also that the Tour Championship should include the World Champion, which it hasn't, the last two years and possibly won't this year either. Holding the Tour Championship after the World Championship will include the best eight players of the whole season. There'll be no need to extend the field to 12. As a long-time snooker fan, I've yet to fully engage with this tournament despite the pundits bigging it up and a few times I've heard the fourth major mentioned. And I'd like it to be that, but it doesn't feel like it yet. Perhaps it being just before the World Championship puts it in its shadow a bit. How about to keep the World Championship as the season end finale, it becomes the first event of the next season, kicking the season off with a big event doesn't have to be held until the end of May or June to allow for a gap after the Worlds. My final thought is that with the talk of moving the World Championship away from the Crucible, and I really don't want this to happen, perhaps instead the Tour Championship should be, could be a global event, and like the opening goal, move around each year to U the UK, Europe and Asia and elsewhere. Anyway, I had to get that off my chest. Thank you for all your hard work in Stuka. Well, thank you for that. And um, the, the one anomaly that you, you're correct in uh, pointing out is that um, the World Championship is the only event actually on the calendar, or only ranking event, that doesn't count towards the player series. It's the biggest event, and it doesn't count. And it's an argument it should, actually. I think you, you could you could argue that it should be the first counting event. So it's yes, it's the one season's points, but it's also counting our biggest tournament. Um, we haven't seen Luca Brussel in any of those events this year, and we're not going to, I don't think. In terms of where the Tour Championship would come, though, I mean, it's supposed to be, the, it's, it's based on the FedEx series in golf, so you, you, you narrow the field from event to event. And it, it's, 
I think it has to be played within a single season. I think if the Tour Championship started the next season, it would all be off kilter. Those three events are rewarding performances in that season. So maybe the answer is you start with the World Championship and then you add on the season's points and you keep the Tour Championship where it is. Hopefully you, you will engage with it more being in Manchester. I think there'll be a better feel about it. There'll be more promotion around it, I think, this year. Um, I get the feeling that'd be a really good tournament this year. <clears throat> As you say, it's been extended to 12 players. Um, but uh, anyway, I hope. Uh, let us know, uh, Peter, when you've um, when you've seen the tournament. Uh, Peter saying he hasn't engaged with it yet, but maybe that will change. Uh, Phil Spivey. Next up, the World Grand Prix. So we're moving on to the next tournament. Um, <clears throat> he says, I write this while enjoying the World Grand Prix. It's a great event, and I really like the player series. ITV do a great job with the coverage, and the concept of the series is brilliant. The Tour Championship is fast becoming a huge tournament to win. So there's a different view of the tournament there. He says, the series as a whole manages to have an elite feel, but is also quite egalitarian at the same time. I like the fact that players have won events or had big runs in tournaments are rewarded, but there are always available spots, especially in the Grand Prix, for players who've had a consistent season, such as Dominic Dale, by winning most of his early round matches. There is always an interesting lineup, including most of the top players, and a selection of those who are slightly lesser known. The Williams and New match was outstanding. I wondered if you could clear something up for me. It's a <laughs> so now, now, how about this for, for a pivot? It's about the 1976 World Championship final between Reardon and Higgins. I've read, heard it said a number of times that Higgins conceded the match early, i.e., before Reardon reached the required number of frames. I think Hendry was the latest to mention it in passing during his punditry work. Some have suggested he gave up a day early. However, I can't find any evidence of this in official sources. The match is shown as being the best of 53, with, and Reardon won the match 27-16, which means he reached the required amount of frames to be declared the winner without an early concession. Q-Tracker also seems to back this up. The only other reference I can find is in Higgins' own autobiography, in which he claims he accidentally conceded one frame too early, and then was too much of a gentleman to retract it, but I'm never sure if he's the most reliable source, even regarding his own career. Obviously, 27-16 was a comfortable victory for Reardon, and this in itself may have meant the match finished a session early. But that happens relatively often. It would not be all that remarkable. With your extensive knowledge of snooker history, are you able to clarify what actually happened? Well, Phil, it's an interesting question, because this is something I've heard down the years as well. And I went back to uh, the snooker scene report of the time, and there's no mention of any concession, uh, a session concession. Um, it's detailed quite... Um, as you'd expect, uh, analytically, how the match developed. So it, it, it's something that's been said, but I can't actually find any evidence for it. Um, the, the match was uh, played in terrible conditions. I mean, the table was no good, the lighting was no good, Ray Reardon was absolutely incandescent with most of it, the referee was no good. I mean, everything was no good, basically. This was, of course, in a way, the reason we ended up at the Crucible, because the venue, uh, Withamshaw Forum, was, was just regarded as not really, you know up to snuff as it were not 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 up to standard and and they needed somewhere better and of course they found the crucible so uh, in the end it worked out okay but uh, in terms of specific details of of this concession well they don't seem to be recorded um, from what i've seen unless listeners out there know better of course which they usually do let's be honest james irwin writes a long-time listener occasional emailer your podcast along with nick and phil's that's talking snooker of course is a mainstay of my listening week please keep doing what you do just a very brief question. With Mark Williams talking about his eyesight, starting to let him down, Stuart Bingham trialling Dennis Taylor-style spectacles, with the age profile of players generally rising, 
Surely laser eye corrective treatment is an option players should consider. Are you aware of any players getting this treatment or discussing it? I know not everyone can receive it. You have to complete various tests to be deemed suitable. There's some short-term pain and discomfort and there is a recovery period of a few weeks but it's been shown to be very effective. I wonder if players are perhaps a bit fearful of it for the exact reasons I set out above uh, without considering the longer-term benefits of their game. Uh, well, James, I know of three players who've had it done. Joe Johnson, I think Joe's had it done more than once because your eyesight will still deteriorate naturally once you've had it done. Um, Anthony Hamilton had it done, but I think he had he, he was given the wrong... Dose is not the right word, but it was kind of done wrong, um, which is not really what you want on your eyes. Uh, Judd Trump, though, he had it done a few years ago. It did make a difference to him. Um, this was just before he kind of started to dominate in a way. So I think in his case, it's definitely worked. Uh, but they're the only players I know. Glass, the thing about Dennis Taylor's glasses, I think people need to understand, they were made by Jack Carnham, who, of course, was a BBC commentator, but he was also an optician. It's kind of a strange <laughs> a combination. But he knew specifically what how to make those glasses because there's different... Vision points, obviously, you know, you've got long distance, short distance, different places to look on the table. And he made those glasses expertly, which helped Dennis obviously have the career that he did. Uh, a normal optician may not appreciate exactly the, the nuances of snooker and how, you know, how it all kind of works. But uh, so that's why I think players do sometimes struggle with glasses because they're not really designed for snooker as such. <clears throat> um, Rob O'Connor. Please tell us the curious tale of the 9x6 table ITV uses part of their set that the pundits stand at. Are there that push for space in the various venues that they desperately need to save themselves three foot? Is there a story there? That, and, and, and while you're on site, I can't think of a better person to get to the bottom of it. Uh, this is gushing praise to end with, but I'll read it out anyway, Rob. As an aside, you're a huge asset to snooker and deserve great praise for your work. I'm sure as Clive is getting on, he's delighted that someone like you is still in the game. Keeping everyone honest and doing your utmost to promote it. I know you don't like to read out praise on your podcast, but you should. Well, I think that you say that. I, it doesn't stop me before. Well, that's very kind of you um, to say that. Um, in terms of the table, well, yeah, the, the studios, uh, you know, those bubble studios, as they're known, they're not big. And, of course, it's not just the, the people in there and the table. It's all the cameras. It's all the rest of it. So, actually, you'd be surprised how much difference a few feet makes. Um, so, that's kind of the answer, really. It's just... It's just uh, it's just where, you know, it's the space that you have, I suppose. Uh, Carl has written in, Thanks for spoiling us with round updates during the Masters. You can't imagine the glee when I see the little red dot on my podcast manager next to the snooker scene icon. And receiving more than one a week blew my tiny mind. Some people are easily pleased, aren't they? Anyway, he says, that My daughter's son and I listen on our drive to their junior snooker league every week and love it. We're a little sad you stop the joke section as this sort of humour runs rife in our house. In that vein, if you fancy bringing it back, we all worked on this together on one of the said drives. My wife, being dubious... Uh, sorry, this is the joke. Right? <laughs> this is the joke, right? Now, remember, this is a snooker uh, podcast. And uh, the setup needs work, I think. But anyway, I'll read it, uh, Carl. You've been kind of to send it in. It says, My wife, being dubious as I was skipping on my chores, installed a Japanese-branded camera in the kitchen to ensure I was doing the washing up. It was a Nippon sink cam. That's right, a Nippon sink cam. That's all very well, but of course, Nippon Sengama, I think we, we know that, know that what it's a, a riff on. Maybe, I mean, I'm not an expert, as you, you've listened to the joke section before, you know that, but maybe he needs to sort of be referenced in some way in the setup, I think, and maybe needs a bit of work. 
good work and good luck to the your your family at the, the Junior Snooker League. Hope they enjoy that and uh, are enjoying are enjoying the podcast as as you drive there. Uh, Mark Rayburn, hello Dave, love the podcast. Really enjoyed the mini party during the Masters. Will you be doing that more often in future events? As I said, Mark, maybe. Um, Maybe. That's as, far, that's as far as I can commit to it. It says, settle an argument we're having on our snooker Facebook page. Do you think the World Championship, World Championship is the only true major in our sport? Mark from Wexford. Uh, well, Mark, uh, yes, really, I suppose. It, it not, there's, there's degrees of majors. I mean, without, you know, people trying to get me to talk about the Triple Crown all the time, those events are not of equivalent value. When people say he's won X amount of Triple Crown events, they're not the same value. The World Championship outranks the other tournaments. It outranks the Masters in the UK Championship. And the Masters in the UK Championship outrank quite a few of the other tournaments. But the World Championship sits on the top of the mountain, definitely. So, is it the only major? You could argue it is, you could argue it isn't. But it is the most important tournament, without question. Um, it's the one you'll ultimately be remembered for more than any other. Um, so that's kind of what I think about that. Uh... Brian Campbell, onto the World Grand Prix here. He says, after an incredible snooker Ronnie played against Ding, quite rightly, some are saying it's one of the best sessions of snooker ever. It'd be a shame, though, with recency bias, if other incredible performances were slightly overlooked. One which brings to mind is John Higgins' demolition of Mark Selby in the Players' Championship in 2021. Not only did John win 6-0, Selby only scored seven points in the entire match. That would have been an incredible achievement against any player, but against an all-time great like Mark Selby, it was quite remarkable. Going back to Ronnie against Ding, it was a pleasure to witness a genius at work. How lucky we are to be around to see Ronnie O'Sullivan produce some of the finest snooker ever played in the history of the game. Uh, are there any other sessions that stand out for you when you just think, wow, like we all did on Saturday? Keep up the fantastic work with the podcast, along with talking snooker. It really is a weekly listening treat. Thank you, Brian. I know what you mean about recency bias, obviously. Um, but Alan McManus, you know, is a very shrewd judge of these things. He actually, he said it was the best session of snooker he'd seen but he said this the next day he didn't say it on that night he thought about it overnight weighed it all up he mentioned the Selby Higgins match which was a phenomenal performance by John Higgins it was a different type of performance he sort of I can't remember exactly what Alan said but essentially Higgins dismantled Selby bit by bit whereas Ronnie sort of bulldozed Ding I mean that was that was an extraordinary display um we're lucky we've seen a lot we've seen a lot from O'Sullivan Ricky Walden match at the Masters 10 years ago I remember Higgins beating O'Sullivan in the in the Grand Prix final at Preston he had four centuries in a row that was pretty much flawless um, but there was something special about you know 70 minutes for the match pot success I think it was 98% I mean it was just brilliant it was just brilliant and Ronnie himself was happy with it clearly which is good to see that's what you want um yeah, amazing. And interestingly, of course, he was playing at night. You know, we mentioned before that he plays a lot of afternoon sessions. He was playing at night and maybe the sort of evening crowd, I don't know, made a difference. I just don't know. Um, it's interesting. About, we had an email about the finals. I mean, a good friend of mine was saying he thinks, oh, Ronnie kind of doesn't try too much early in finals. He, he sort of susses out the opponent, sees if they can take him on. And then in the evening, he makes the effort. And I disagreed. But <laughs> the evidence of the last two weeks... Suggests he might be onto something because he wasn't much good in the first session of either uh, final, but then he played better at night and he, he ultimately won them both. Uh, Malcolm Johnston, watching the final between O'Sullivan and Trump during the ninth frame, Ronnie played the balls where they finished after Judd missed the green coming out of a snooker. Wrong shot came the call from Ken Doherty. He should have had the balls replaced. 
Now, Ronnie went on to lose that frame, but it struck me that someone like Ken, that known Ronnie since he was a young teenager, should be aware of how Ronnie views replacing the balls, and that he feels it's not in the spirit of the game, unless it's against a player he doesn't like or respect. So why not make it widely known instead of calling the shot? Ken would play as an ultra-safe style type of player. I'm not knocking Mr Doherty as a commentator, but he can talk some nonsense. <laughs> Sounds like you are knocking Ken a little bit there, but anyway. I'm sure most of the commentators and colour commentary know this type, these type of quirks from a player that's on the business end of most tournaments. I've not written for a long time, but this has just rubbed me up the wrong way. Well, nothing wrong with that, Malcolm. There's two things about that. One... O'Sullivan usually does have the balls replaced. This business about, oh, I, I don't like the Mistral, 90% of the time he has the balls replaced. The second one, though, and uh, this is a bit unfortunate, it wasn't actually a miss. He hit the green. Um, it was it was very very thin contact. We actually checked check with Jan Verhaas, the marker. He did hit it. Here's the thing. You, you, sort of optically, it can be a bit of an illusion at times. We've never really addressed the big issue in snooker, which is why do we have a green ball on a green cloth? <laughs> because actually, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I know it's a different shade of green, but why do we have a green ball on a green cloth? Surely by now, you know, the, the, it could have been, I don't know, it may have, I don't know, the, you know, it would be, there would be marches in the street if this happened, Parliament being recalled, but maybe that could be a different colour, couldn't it? Because actually, that's the reason, I mean, I, I didn't think he'd hit it either, but Ken, Ken was adamant he hadn't, but he had them. So, actually, in the end, it wasn't a miss. Um... <clears throat> Matthew McConnell a couple of things that popped into my head as I watched the World Grand Prix this week are average shot times calculated as the time from one strike of the cue ball to the next or from when the balls come to rest at the end of the shot until the next strike of the cue ball i.e. is the time when balls are moving around the table after a shot has been played included in, in the average shot time I hope I've explained that well enough I'm curious because Ronnie got down to 12 seconds a shot against Ding by the end I'd like to understand the mechanics of how it's calculated to be able to contextualise it um, <clears throat> on that, I think, um, as far as I know, well, what should happen is the when the balls have stopped moving, okay, that's when it's your shot. So when the cue ball stops or any balls moving stops, that is the time that the clock starts. Um, so, yeah, essentially that's it. And uh, and then when you played the shot, the clock, that's deemed to be the end of your shot. Um, some of the some of the average shot times. I mean, twelve seconds a shot. It seems preposterous, but he was playing quick, and also the cue ball was on a piece of string. It wasn't moving much between shots. He wasn't roaming around the table. Um, Matthew continues. I've noticed that ITV seems to be the only broadcaster that changes its commentary team entirely at every interval. Eurosport and BBC keep the same duo for the entirety of a match if memory serves. Uh, ITV also seems to regularly rotate its studio pundits during matches. I was wondering if you know what the rationale is for doing this and if you have a preference for one way or the other. In my opinion, whilst it's nice to have a wide range of voices and opinions on a match, I feel keeping a more consistent lineup for the duration of a match is better. For example, if someone makes a particular point at the start of a match about how a player might approach a match strategically or a type of shot they feel a player struggles to play well, those can then follow up with them later on how those points are played out in the match. Often the ITV pundits and commentators are aware of what's been said will reference a talking point raised by someone who was previously in the studio comms box, but I think it's better to hear a response directly from the horse's mouth. ITV's coverage is superb, so it's only a minor point, but I thought I'd ask. I think um, I think what you have to understand is, like broadcasters, they don't all want to do it the same way as each other, so they'll be looking for ways to do it differently, and you've got their four very 
compelling and interesting voices. Ken, Stephen Hendry, Alan and Neil Folds. And I suppose the feeling is people want to hear from all of them at some point. So that's why they're rotated. They've all got something to, to contribute and something to say. Um, Matthew has a PS here. Hossein Rafai seems to have mastered the art of the imagined grievance. He'd give Michael Jordan a run for his money in terms of taking things personally. Yes, I mean, that was all a bit unfortunate. I mean, there were three uh, incidents in that match. Obviously, Hussein, in the second frame, misread the scores, didn't realise he needed the black, lost that frame. He did have a chance at the black afterwards, but lost that frame. So he was in a bad mood because of that. <laughs> Mark Williams picked the cue ball up, and it was a seven-point penalty. Um, most extraordinary sentence uttered in the arena last week. Oliver Martil is a great referee. Of course, he was, you know, marred in putting the balls back at this point when he realised Mark had picked the cue ball up. But he said, it's a seven-point penalty. Uh, the rules changed in the consultation period. How about that for a sentence? The rules changed in the consultation period. So it didn't used to be. And pointed out he'd done it before. It hadn't been fouled, but it was the rules were changed. It seemed a bit unfortunate. Mark was having a bit of fun. But the referee is there to enforce the rules. And if they are the rules, that's what he's got to do. And then at the end, Hossein storming out with that shaking hands. I thought that was bad, really. I think... Win or lose, you've got to look the other person in the eye and shake their hand. That is part of snooker. That is part of sport. You have to win and lose, hopefully graciously. But even if he's not gracious, you still shake the hand of the other person. Uh, or in Ronnie O'Sullivan's case, fist bump them. Either way, acknowledge them. Um, and, yeah, it was all a bit silly. And Mark, fair play to me, went up to Hussein in the practice room and sort of confronted him about it. And he said, oh, you know, you slap your leg. Well, if that's the reason for not shaking hands, good grief. He's a passionate guy, Hossein, and, you know, again, we don't know what's going maybe things off table, whatever, but I think he would regret that now. Um, just shake the guy's hand. Just going back to the Masters, Laura Hughes uh, has written in here, so I love your commentary always, can you help me? I'm going mad to find out the introductory music before the contestants come out for the game. Uh, not their choice of music, but the music played before. Um, now, I looked into this, and someone said it was... Uh, S Express Ride on Time, which is an old uh, hit from the 80s. Um, I didn't recognise it at that, but that's what I was told it was. So, again, if anyone knows better, do write in. Uh, we're going to now end, well, po possibly with the biggest news of all, which is, of course, the new tournament in Saudi Arabia. Now, Alpha Bonds is written in off the back of last night's World Grand Prix. He's got his three questions. Ronnie, once again, the standout player of the season, as well as of all time. What was the real issue at the start of the week? The Ali Carter spat, draining his enthusiasm, boredom from how easy it was for him to play badly and win matches, nothing left to give after 30 years. Honestly, Alpha, who knows? Um, maybe all of those things, maybe none of them. Um, I think when he, like I say, when he gets to these tournaments, there's, there's pressure on him, but when he gets to the table, and that's different, when he gets to the snooker table, then he is at home. And we've seen that, obviously, with the last two weeks winning the tournaments he has. Number two, is Judd Trump the only real challenger to O'Sullivan at the Crucible, despite his defeat on Sunday night? Uh, no, I would say not. Mark Allen's my tip, and I'm sticking with that um, through thick and thin. There's a lot of players that can win the World Championship. Obviously, last year, Luca Purcell beat O'Sullivan there. It's a different beast. It's a different tournament, different challenge, different sort of mental attitude needed. Um, so there's lots of players who could win it, but O'Sullivan absolutely is the favourite right now, no question. And number three... We all know the golden ball is an utterly nonsense, is utter nonsense. But otherwise, how should I feel about the Saudi event? Has the professional game sold its soul, or is it just following the money? Thanks as always for being the same voice in the mad world of pro snooker. 
Okay, so we move on here. We're going to end by talking about the new Riyadh Masters. Now, this is part of, they call it the Riyadh season. It's a season of events in Saudi Arabia. Um, it's snooker's first foray there. And it, of course, is controversial because all sport is controversial. There's accusations of sports washing, uh, using sport to cover up human rights abuses. Um, here's what I think about this. I mean, of course, originally in 2020, a tournament was announced there. It didn't happen. COVID intervened, although actually it was nothing to do with COVID. Um, I was told it was because the, the contract wasn't kind of honoured. Um, but anyway, we are where we are now. I think that it was inevitable this would happen. I do have sympathy for World Snooker Tour. They are charged with running a vibrant circuit. They're a business. They're about attracting investment. And people have said they should go to new territories and raise the prize money and all of that. And so they found a way of doing that. And people are now saying, oh, well, we didn't mean go there. <laughs> go, you know, we don't like that place. Um, you know, they, I think it, it would be questionable to turn down the money. But to a lot of people, of course, it's questionable to take it. This is a 10-player event, top eight in the world after the Players' Championship, two local wildcards. Um, there's three issues about this. One is the issue of going to Saudi Arabia. One is the issue of it being a limited field of just the top eight. And the other is the golden ball, um, <laughs> which is going to be, we're told, worth 20 points. And if you make a maximum, you get to pot it and make a 1-6-7. I'm going to deal with them in descending order of importance. Firstly, the golden ball. Um, it seems to have been a competition online. Who can be the most pompous about this? Uh, who can be the most joyless? It's, it's a million laughs, this. <laughs> it's hilarious. A golden ball is going to be placed on the table. Nobody seems to know anything about how it's going to work. Originally, I was told it would be in the pack, with, amongst the pack of reds. I don't, I don't know how that works. Then it'll be, oh no, we'll have it on the bulk cushion throughout. I asked the question, well, what happens if you knock it in at some point or move it? What's the foul? Can you roll it behind it after a snooker? Nobody knew. So essentially, it seems now what they're saying is, if you make a one four seven, they're going to put the the golden ball on the table, probably on the blue spot, and if you pop that, you get an extra twenty points. <laughs> now, it's the sort of thing on April Fool's Day, you know, you you, you would roll out and everyone would say, oh yeah, good one. Uh, it's actually happening. Um, here's what I think about it. Okay, it will it will actually be quite a dramatic uh, innovation. If there's, if there's value to it, and points value is a complete irrelevance, and I'll come on to that in a minute, but if there's monetary value, so let's say, for example, if you make a 147, it's 30,000, right? But if you then pop the extra ball, you double your money, it's another 30,000. Then there would be jeopardy. That would actually, you know, that would be quite exciting. I'd quite like to see that. Um, but it all comes down to where the ball's gonna go. It, put it this way, anyone who plays snooker at any level, if they potted the, a black off the spot, and the black will be on the spot for the maximum. It's quite easy to get on the blue. You know, the, it's the middle of the table. It pops into six different pockets. You're going to get a shot at it somewhere. Um, it wouldn't be that difficult. To me, the shootout have got it right. When they have that blue ball shootout, here's what my idea would be for this, okay, with the golden ball. By the way, the golden ball of Riyadh, that sounds like a Frederick Forsyth novel. It turns out it isn't. It's, it's, it's happening in our sport. Um, what they should do is, if, if a player makes the maximum, there's then... The referee then takes the cue ball, puts it in the ball end. The player who's made the maximum gets to put it anywhere in the D. The golden ball is on the blue spot. So then you've got to pot a long blue in effect for the, to double your money. That would be exciting. Actually, that would be exciting. I don't, I don't have any problem with that. What I do have an issue with is if you start 
sort of tinkering with things. It can be like Jenga, you know, you pull out a piece, the whole thing collapses. I mean, it clearly hasn't been thought through really because it keeps ch- the, the parameters of what's, how it's going to work keep changing. We still don't really know. Um, but that would be my suggestion. If a player makes a maximum, they then get a chance to pot a long gold off the, off the blue spot and they double their money. That would be exciting. What will not happen, I can assure you, is it's not going to be a 167. Um, the shootout, okay, and people have their own views on that. The, the shootout rules are in the official rules of snooker. The WPBSA rules of snooker, the shootout has a section, all the rules are laid out. There is nothing in the rules of snooker to say that another ball is worth 20 points. And until it's codified in the rules, it cannot possibly count as a 167. Because what will happen next time is, the promoter of, say, the China Open will come along and say, well, we want the black to count 10, because we want a higher break. Where will it end? And I'm speaker, someone, I'm the statistician for all the broadcasters. It will be in the record books, if it happens, a 147 with an asterisk explaining that there was another ball potted. There is no such break as a 167. You can't just put a ball on the table and give it an arbitrary points value. <laughs> Unless it's codified in the official rules. If it is, we'll have to swallow it. But until that happens, it ain't a 167. But it's as an idea, as a publicity stunt, it's genius. There's been so much comment on it. It was on the BBC 6 o'clock news, okay? The BBC 6 o'clock news, there was a report on it. Now, that's massive. That's one of the most watched news programmes, one of the most watched programmes all week on British television. There have been lots of pieces in the papers, a lot of them quite sort of joyless about it, and, oh, it's the end of the world. I don't see it as that at all. I think it's it's quite an inventive stunt, actually. Um, but, you know, and, and I say, talk about Ronnie O'Sullivan bulldozing snooker into the headlines. This has done the same. So I'm not completely um, against as a publicity stunt, but I think you have to be careful trying to claim it's worth points. The points values are relevant. It should be a financial value, and then it would actually work as, a, as an interest driver. The second issue is the fact that it's the top eight who are being invited. Um, this has gone down like a bag of sick with a lot of the lower-ranked players, which on one level is understandable, but on another um, is not. Pretty much every ranking event that's ever been staged outside the UK has been a pre- uh, there's previously been an invitation event there so the the water is always tested with a short format event with the most recognisable players the prime assets of the game are the leading players and the best way to test the market and find out the interest and also learn how to stage an event and the travel arrangements and, and just how it's going to work is with a small field of players uh, that happened in Canada, it happened in China, it happened in Dubai, it happened in Australia, in India. Pretty much everywhere we've been with a ranking event, we've first been with an invitation event. The Daily Telegraph reported that there will be a ranking event in Saudi Arabia next season. And it's been quite widely trailed by Barry Hearn and others that that will happen. So the, the, these low-ranked players will get a chance to play in a tournament there for big money. But for now, this event is for the top eight. It's worth saying this, and various players have had this say, they're not the top players, they're the best players. Okay, Everybody starts at the bottom, and the best players earn their place at the top. To complain if you're the world number 70, you're not in this tournament in Riyadh, is like Chesterfield complaining they're not in the Champions League. Okay, Not every event is for everybody, that's just a fact. The, pl- the, the best players earn the right to play in these prestige events. Um, and... There's a bit of a sort of tin-eared response from some of the lower ranked players. Where do they think the interest comes from? It comes from matches like last night with Ronnie O'Sullivan against Judd Trump. They drive the interest and they create the opportunities for everyone else. 
And there are a lot of ranking events where people have the opportunity to break through and become one of the leading players. Um, but as I say, it's highly likely there'll be a ranking event in Saudi Arabia next year. What what is the what is the argument here that we either have a ranking event or nothing? That's ridiculous. I think some of the comments from some of these guys are frankly not acceptable. I think that they need to look at the bigger picture. They are playing the game and having the opportunity to earn money from snooker because of these leading players. That's always been the case. It's the case in every sport. Tiger Woods driving interest in golf. Federer and Nadal, the Williams sisters driving interest in tennis. The big stars drive the interest. Saudi Arabia would not be interested in this tournament. The Riyadh event would not be happening if it weren't for the top players. Okay, That's just a fact. So that's point number two. And as I say, it looks like there will be a ranking event in Saudi Arabia uh, later in the year. Point number three is the issue of going to Saudi Arabia. Um, as I say, I feel that this was inevitable because so many other sports have gone there. It was inevitable snooker will be caught up in this eventually. A lot of people find it distasteful, I know. But this is the way of the world. And the way I look at it is this. And I said this four years ago. It's not actually up to snooker um, to take a stance if no one else will. You know, when I was growing up in the 80s, there was a ban on going to South Africa for sporting events because of apartheid. That was a government-imposed ban. That and we had rebel tours of South Africa and all that stuff. The players were were banned from playing for England. But our government trade with Saudi Arabia. Everyone else can trade with them. We sell weapons to them worth billions of pounds. All sorts of businesses and industries are allowed to trade with Saudi Arabia. So why is it the sport is the one that shouldn't be allowed? Why is it the sport is singled out? Why is it that snooker has to be the one that stands up? A lot of people would say it'd be great if they did, but it would make no difference at all to anything. Um, unless there's a collective political will uh, or even diktat to say we are not going to allow Saudi Arabia into the sporting community, we're not going to deal with them in any way, you cannot go there. If there isn't that instruction, then sport is free to do that. And it's interesting as well that, and I think it's because they've got so much money that people feel particularly enraged by this, there's a lot of countries with poor human rights records. Again, because of weak political leadership in other parts of the world, we, we tolerate this. Um, China isn't the best. Are we going to say we're not going to have a tournament in a country with the death penalty? Well, in that case, we won't be going to America. And even here in Britain, you know, our, our history, you know, is complicated, as all countries are. You walk around Britain, there's the statues up of slave traders and warmongers. You know, in recent times, various military interventions we've been involved in have created havoc in the world. Um, I think we have to be careful about a sort of sense of exceptionalism, the idea that we are the sole moral arbiters um, of what should happen and what does happen. And, you know, everything is rosy in our garden and how dare, you know, how dare these other countries behave how they do. That's not to say, I mean, Amnesty International, if you go to their website, which I have done, lists some appalling um, information about things that happen in Saudi Arabia, the lack of free speech the lack of equality, um, the, you know, the executions that go on. It, it, it is distasteful. But I said this as well four years ago. There's, there's kind of three positions you can take. One is we should not go there. It's disgusting. We should not have a part of that. Fine to think that. Equally fine to say it's sport. It's not politics. We should follow opportunities when they come along. That's also fine. In the middle, it's more nuanced. And I think in the middle, it's more interesting. And I think it comes down to this, okay, is it morally questionable to go to Saudi Arabia? Yes. Would it be irresponsible from a business perspective to not go there? Yes. Is it up to players ultimately 
to make their minds up? Yes. Question number four, am I answering my own questions? Yes. Players, um, I've not heard a single player say they won't go or, or speak out. It's a little bit unfair in a way, again, to expect snooker players to make political statements and, and, and leadership. Our political leaders should be leading on this, shouldn't they? It's not up to the world number seven to, to, you know, be making statements about this stuff. Frankly, the players don't really have that much knowledge of it. I think it would help if World Snooker Tour sort of primed them a little bit, not told them what to say, but they're going to be asked about this in interviews. Just provide them with the information they need to actually discuss it because otherwise, you know, it could actually rebound quite badly. I think they need information. Amnesty International themselves have said they would like the players to educate themselves. They would like the players to speak out. I think that's unlikely to happen, but at least arm yourself with the information, do a bit of reading, understand what it is you're getting involved in. But this is the reality. As I say, if our political leaders, you know, allow everyone else to trade with Saudi Arabia, it's inevitable that sport will be next. And we know the football and golf, tennis, various other sports, boxing, big in Saudi Arabia. It is the new place with all the money they've got where we're going to see more events in the future. Where it all leads, I don't know. I know a lot of people are uncomfortable about it. But it's a reality, and it's a reality that, you know, they're, they're actually, and it's sad to say this, but there are relatively few parts of the world that don't have issues, actually. Um, and that is, the, the you know, the world we've created. And if people feel strongly about it, they shouldn't be targeting snooker. They should be targeting the government. They should be targeting politicians. They should be joining Amnesty International. They should be making a stand against it. It's, uh, as I say, it's nuanced. It's, uh, it's, was always coming down the line, I think, and I, I, I do feel that, you know, this will be revisiting this next season when there'll be a ranking event. From my point of view, my job is to report on snooker. If I'm asked to report on this event to work at it, I will do, because it's not up to me to choose where snooker goes or doesn't go. My job is to report, report on it, and that's what will happen. Um, we'll see. It's uh, going to be interesting. I think one thing that, that is certainly the case is there's no sort of, history of live attendance in Saudi Arabia. I'm, I'm not sure what the atmosphere will be like there. Uh, we'll find out because the Riyadh event will be on three days in March and then we'll see, as I say, the Telegraph was saying there'll be a ranking event as well. Uh, so that's it really. Um, that's it for this week. Uh, there's World Open and Welsh Open qualifying coming up uh, this week and then the German Masters and of course a very busy, increasingly busy time uh, on the snooker circuit. Ronnie O'Sullivan reigning supreme at the moment. Um, you know, you can't argue with what he's achieved and what he continues to achieve. And it is up to the other players to step up and try and wrestle the spotlight back. It won't be easy because he's a very singular, unique character. He does things his own way, but it's working. Whatever anyone thinks, and we've had a range of comments this week, it's working and it's up to other people to come forward and try and stop him. And it won't be easy because just too good at the moment do keep your comments coming in snooker scene podcast at mail.com snooker scene podcast at mail.com uh, but that's it for now and as we always say goodbye bye sports social podcast network step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family 
purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.